0: 20 years after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the novel Rockaway Blue probes the griefs, trauma, and resilience of Irish-American New Yorkers wrestling with the deaths and aftershocks of that terrible day. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University, Newark. Today I'm talking with Larry Kirwan, author of Rockaway Blue. His book is grounded in the neighborhood of Rockaway and the borough of Queens, but it weaves throughout New York City, from police offices in Manhattan to Arab-American Brooklyn. And like all of Larry's work, it has a strong sense of history. Larry is the author of five other books, including the novel Rocking the Bronx, the memoir Green Suede Shoes, an Irish-American Odyssey, a history of Irish music, and 16 plays and musicals. He's also the host of Celtic Crush, a radio show on Sirius XM. But he's probably best known as the leader of Black 47, an Irish rock band whose songs mixed Irish music, rock and roll and more with lyrics that celebrated immigrant experiences old and new and the socialist strain in Irish republicanism embodied by James Connolly. We're here thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Larry. Hey, how you doing, Rob? Good, good, good. What were your own experiences on September 11th?
1: Well, I live just uh, above Canal Street. uh, So I'm a Mets fan. (laughs) And when uh, (laughs) I was watching the or checking out the results in the New York Times, uh, having breakfast, and all of a sudden I hear this sound. Uh, I recognize it straight away as a plane, but I thought it was going to crash into my building. So I slammed my head down onto the table. It felt so close. And then seconds later, I heard the big. Bang! And I uh, ran up on the roof, and there, to my amazement, was the um, was the sight of that big airliner in the North Tower. So, so that was a big one. But the the influence of the book came about a week later. Um, being in Black Forty Seven, I was, um, you know, we were really popular in New York at the time, and we had. a uh, a regular gig if we were in the city on Saturday nights in a place called Connolly's up on 45th Street. And uh, so in an effort to get people to come back into Midtown, because if you remember, Midtown was totally deserted at that point, we went back to having our gig that following Saturday night. And the word spread, a big crowd came, but a lot of first responders came up from uh, the pit, as we call it then, down on uh, West Street. And um, I noticed something the first night we were there, and it went on for about six weeks because we didn't really know who was dead and who was alive that whenever the door of the the third floor where we played opened, everybody looked over and it would be an instant feeling of uh, triumph or joy when someone would walk in and be like, oh, Jack has made it or Mary has made it. And that continued for quite a while. And I began to think, you know, Jack has made it, Mary has made it, but how about Billy or Joan? They're not going to make it. And I had this desire to write something that would commemorate the, those who lived and those who didn't, the ordinary people, the regular people of New York, not the Giulianis who and the Bushes who were co-opting it already to, uh, to invade Iraq. So that was the initial um, that was the initial thing I had about it.
0: You know, your novel is dedicated to Father Michael Judge and to Richard T. Muldowney Jr., Engine 16, Ladder 7 of the New York City Fire Department. Could you tell us a little about each of them and why you chose to dedicate your book to them?
1: Well, Father Michael was a big Black 47 fan and uh, used to come to a lot of the gigs, which was kind of <laughs> a little strange at first. You know, I had been an older boy to Franciscans, so I was kind of used to it. <laughs> <laughs> seeing a uh, a fully cowled franciscan uh priest or cleric uh with his elbow on the counter at the bar was was a stunner to a lot of people at for the 47 gig cuz we were fairly rowdy gigs and i'm not even sure he really loved the band's music cuz his music was his taste was more like to danny boy and everything Although we did have a Danny Boy song. Uh, it was about a gay construction Irish worker or gay <laughs> Irish construction worker. So, you know, I missed him. I still miss him, as do a lot of New Yorkers. He, he was a figure who cut through all the bullshit that, that might be going on. And he, you could tell him anything. Nothing shocked him. And he was there for everyone. So that was uh, Father Michael. Richie Muldowney was more of a Black 47 fan. He was from around the corner. We used to play in a place called Paddy Riley's. That's where we pretty much started off on 28th and uh, 2nd. And he was from the Fire Engine, uh, I think it was 30th and 2nd. So Richie was just the most amazing guy. What he loved to do was get our schedule And say we were playing in Florida or Chicago or somewhere, he would just, uh, he wouldn't tell us he was coming and he he would hide in the club until the minute we came out on stage and then he would bop up right in front of us. Look who's here. It's Richie. And you knew when Richie was there, it was, it was going to be a great gig because he took it upon himself to break down the fourth wall between the band and the audience instantly. I mean, at Black 47 Gigs, you always went over the audience in the end anyway. But with Richie there, you knew you had won him from the uh, the first uh, moment. So Richie was kind of like the the regular guy I wanted to uh, dedicate the book to. And I suppose Father Michael was more of a celebrity, uh, but still just the most decent, regular man you could ever come across. And I I, I still miss both of them. Sure,
0: sure. You know, I remember after nine eleven, a lot of the obituaries depicted the people who died as, as, yeah. as heroes or saints in some ways. But your characters in this novel are a lot more complicated than that. Why did you choose to go that way?
1: Exactly because of what you just mentioned. I think you're the first person to to mention it. I never, I don't think I've ever said it. But part of the uh, inspiration was. Uh, that New York Times two pages they used to dedicate to the pictures and the little bio of each of the people who died. And because, uh, well, Chris Byrne, the co-founder of uh, Black 47, was a detective sergeant himself. Uh, so I knew a lot of cops, and we had a big uh, following in the fire department and a big following with young financials. We call them young financials. They were usually <laughs> the first generation Irish Americans who had gone to college and had gone instantly down to wall street. Uh, quite a number of them were uh, worked for Fitzgerald Cantor, uh, the financial firm that took a big hit. And, um, so when I would see these pictures and everything, you know, I was thrilled to see, well, not thrilled to see the friends were there, but to see that they were getting, um, you know, lauded and everything, but it was always the same, uh, you know, John uh, coached the or he was a member of the PTA, coached the local baseball team. It was all things like that. Whereas I knew these people, you know, as full-blooded New Yorkers. We used to call them Clinton's children. Not that they liked the Clinton's running, but it it was more, there was an optimism back in those days. And everybody was out of the town till all hours of night. So guys I would see, you know, he was the head of the PTA in his area. I was thinking, really? (laughs) 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 He never seemed like that to me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was always the same. So I thought, you know, they're getting it wrong, you know. Because the full-blooded guys that that the obituaries were about were so interesting, a lot of them. They were... You know, you always hear about cops being, you know, right-wing and everything, and sure enough, many of them were, but, you know, they had all sorts of political views, they had all sorts of um, musical tastes, which is why I made Jimmy – Uh, An Allman Brothers freak that he's still Mm -hmm. in his 50s is is thinking about Dwayne Allman, you know, as he's going about his business, because that's the way these guys were. You know, they were full blooded and interesting people.
0: You know, alongside your characters, it's the community of Rockaway that shines through the book. How did you choose to focus on this particular neighborhood?
1: I knew it well. That was one thing. When I came uh, to the city from uh, <laughs> Ireland, um, you know, I, I lived on the Lower East Side you know, in, in places were $90 to $150 a month. So it was never air conditioning. Nobody had air conditioning on the Lower East Side much. And if it did, it was a, a thing that rattled all night and <laughs> kept everybody else awake. Uh, so I used to hang out in after hours places, the social drinking clubs. And I was in there one night and I was talking to this black guy. And I was telling him, Man, how do you uh, how do you deal with the with with the, the weather, you know, the, the humidity and everything? He said, Man, you know, just get on the A train. Don't go to the Bronx, go the opposite direction and go to the end of the line. <laughs> and when you get off there, you'll find a beach. And there's a wind blows on that beach, and you can swim, you can do anything you like out there. And so sure enough, I hopped on the A train and went the wrong direction. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up in Rockaway, and I couldn't believe it. There was all these old men bars uh, where they played accordions, and everybody was standing outside with... Big red faces from sunburn, <laughs> drinking pints, and I never made it to the beach. The first day I went out, <laughs> I stayed stayed in the barn maybe till about ten at night. And then they were sending me, "Are you getting home?" And I said, uh, "I'll take the I'll take the A train." They said, "You're taking the A train at night?" <laughs> I said, well, "How else am I going to get back? And walk." And uh, so I learned a lot about life in uh, Rockaway, and then my brother jimmy lives in breezy point so i had an entree into the more um upscale i suppose although i I never saw it that way but it's a gated community Mm -hmm. but i wanted it to be a place where you could show three sides you could show kind of urban far rockaway you could get rockaway beach in all its splendor whatever that is and you get the more uh distant uh breezy point that was trying to keep the world outside uh i I figured and i also wanted a place because in black black 47 loved rockaway it was it was it was black 47 country we used to call it the republic of rockaway because they just did things their own way out there and uh, there used to be this huge festival on the street and we were topping a bill as long as it went on and, uh, on Giuliani closed it down. And it was just an amazing scene. And I realized also looking at the people like yourself, have an interest in history and, um, looking at the people from the stage, you know, you, you, see so much. And I realized there were, there was a type of Irish person out there that I didn't even see in Ireland anymore. Uh, you could tell that they came, you know, maybe in the 1840s and eventually made their way out to Rockaway and had never moved in three or four generations. And uh, they they looked from a different time and place. And mm. I got to know so many of the people out there. I thought, wow, you know, this is a no-brainer. I put it in Rockaway. And besides, it's a very distinctive place. It's cut off. Uh, they don't... They, they're part of New York City, but they don't really consider themselves <laughs> New York City. That's that's the city, and that's where all the problems are. Here, we got our problems, but we deal with them in our own way. What kind of research did you do for the book? Well, not too much because I knew cops, I knew firemen. Mm-hmm. I knew people like Jimmy. Uh, I knew that getting Jimmy right was the key to the book that he mm-hmm. had to he had to be totally believable and likable but a guy with faults and uh, mm-hmm. who had never totally recovered from his own outing in Vietnam gone at 19 came back and had been damaged there but you know, because they were that generation, they didn't make a big deal of it in any way. It was just, so I'm PTSD. They didn't even have that, that those words at the time. Uh, so I knew, I knew once I got him, I'd be okay because the other characters would kind of fall in line behind them. I had to go out a few times to just make sure I was you know, saying things right geographically. Uh, and my brother drinks in Roger's Pub out there every Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> so I would go out there. But uh, I didn't want to write anything down, you know, because then people would stop, you know, being themselves and everything. So I used to have to go out there and I would ask questions and then try and remember everything as I got on the... Uh, a train looped myself you know, I was <laughs> saying that i can't forget this i gotta say it over and over because if i doze off on the train or something i uh, you know i'll uh, i'll forget everything i learned out there so a lot of it was kind of an ancillary um uh, background to it just to deepen my own experience of it but i knew rockaway pretty well
0: yeah <laughs> You know, one of the dominant impressions of the NYPD after 9-11 was this tremendous sense of solidarity that you saw when you looked at police officers' funerals. But you depict the department as a place with an internal life where there's a lot more competition between officers, where there's all sorts of rivalries and hierarchies. I think you do that very honestly. How have people reacted to that? Uh, I haven't had any complaints at all.
1: Which frightens me. (laughs) There could be a big one coming down the pike. (laughs) Luckily, Giuliani has made himself so stupid these days that uh, any of the things I say about him in there uh, are kind of accepted as the norm now. Whereas Mm -hmm. we had spoken about him. In a, a bad manner in any way, you know, around the time of 9-11, you would have had a lot of problems. But that was one of the things, too, that, uh, you know, it took me a long time to get this book right. Uh, first of all, as I said, you know, the the Knights and Connollys right after it influenced everything. So, Black Forty Seven did uh, an album called New York Town, which was uh, dedicated to the years right before 9-11 and the years after it. So that came out, I think, in 2003. But it, it didn't really settle it for me, although there was a, a good song about Michael Judge on there. Um, so then being a playwright, I figured, let me have a shot at this uh in a dramatic way or a stage way. And the play, which was called The Heart Has a Mind of Its Own, uh, was produced and people liked it, but I didn't. It was I, I knew I had something wrong with it. And the problem was Jimmy. I already had the characters at this point and a mm-hmm. mm-hmm. certain mm-hmm. amount of what was going on. But I got Jimmy wrong. Uh, I had him you know, cheating on his wife at the time. And it was just something uh, dislikable about him in ways that he's not anymore. And, you know, I, I, it took me a while to see what my problem was with it. And so I let it sit for another four or five years. And then uh, I figured, ah, let me try it as a, a novel because it seemed like you had to get into the, um, the characters' minds, and mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. a, hard, a hard thing to do on stage, uh, whereas you need the the author's voice probing the minds of the characters. Um, you know, and then finally I got it. But yeah, you know, you talk to any cop, <laughs> you tell you like the department's a tough place, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, the, mm-hmm. they're the rising stars, you know. And so mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I made Brian the the man who dies uh, in the book, I made him a rising star who pushes past his father in the department. The, fa- the father can't believe in authority after nine, after uh, being in Vietnam. So he always has a problem in the department because of that. Whereas his son, Brian, uh, has had a good upbringing with Jimmy as his father and is able to progress through the department and becomes a lieutenant at 30. So there's a a bit of competition between the father and son. But what happens really is when Brian dies, Jimmy for the first time realizes that Brian was the center of the family, not the father the way it usually is. Mm. So that that was a big... uh, That was a big discovery for me, too, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certain times when when you're writing a book, I try to plan it as much as I can, but then you always leave leave it open so that you can be hit by new discoveries on the Mm -hmm. way. And that was a huge one for me to realize Mm -hmm. that Jimmy had been surpassed in his family and what that did to him. But at the same time... If he's going to investigate what's going on, he stands a really big chance of ripping his family further apart. And mm-hmm. should, should he do that? Should he take the risk? And uh, he does nothing he can do. He has to do it, but he realizes that you know, I'm 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 making a huge, I'm I'm taking a huge risk here.
0: Did you learn anything new about the New York Irish by doing Rockaway Blue?
1: <laughs> I have a PhD in the New York Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Columbia. <laughs> you know being being with Black 47. I mean I I knew the New York Irish pretty well anyway, but but I used to live on the Lower East Side, so I I became much more uh, tuned into the um, the Puerto Rican world, the uh, Dominican mm-hmm. world, and mm-hmm. the the African American world that used to be down around Avenue B mm-hmm. and Third Street. And uh, so then I would go up to the Bronx and play gigs up there, and would get to really see what the what what was going on in Irish America, but as an outsider. And then when Chris Byrne and I formed uh, Black 47, Chris was a quintessential Irish-American and you know, with a lot of great qualities. Uh, so he, being a detective, he, he he really had his finger on the pulse of Irish-America. So just by being with him, by osmosis, I was picking up a huge amount. Uh, and then 25 years of Black 47 you know, we traveled the whole country, and we would always, of course, play in many different places. We had a we had a two tiered career. We would going into a new city, we could either play at the big rock club or the big Irish bar, and sometimes play at both of them. But I got to see. What Irish America was, say you know in Syracuse and uh, Seattle and San Francisco, and they were all different you know? mm-hmm. the the Irish Americans I found out, or the Irish when they went to a different area became like a bit like the people in that area mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when you go to Boston you know in the old days when you went to Boston, nobody would applaud for you. <laughs> yeah you know, to have to say to each we are going to Boston, now, you know no one's going to applaud, but they will they they are liking us, and they'll applaud at the end, <laughs> <laughs> of course I were pretty drunk anyway, but it didn't make any difference but i I learned about so much about Irish America in with black forty seven I don't think I learned anything from writing the book i really? uh, I just used the the knowledge i picked up over the years,
0: mm hmm you know, there's a great sense of history in all of your work. And could you compare for a minute the challenges of conveying history in song lyrics, plays, and novels, and nonfiction?
2: Um,
1: well, let me see. You have to be honest uh, and with your own views, you know, what you have seen. <laughs> and yet take into account the facts that are there also, in each case with the songs, um, songs, you don't have to get everything exactly on the nail. You're, excuse me. You're trying to convey feeling with a song more than actual events. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one, one thing about it. And a song also is very different than, than a novel, uh, a bit of journalism or, um, or a play, in that it comes from the the lyrics and the uh, and the music fusing at a certain point. I often uh, compare it to a hammer hitting an anvil, and then mm-hmm. sparks come off, and that's what a great song is. Um, with plays, you kind you are a bit tuned more towards the truth, the actual facts. But at the same time, you can really delve more into characters and plays because you're going to see your subjects right on stage in front of you. And uh, I don't know if people realize it, but if a playwright or a dramatist makes one mistake with a character where you can say as an audience member, ah, that's full of shit. I know guys like that, and they weren't like that at all. You know, uh, Then the play falls apart at that point. So you, you have to get the characters right in plays. Of course, in journalism, I write a column for the Irish Echo, and uh, apart from having editors who will read it you've got to be sure of your facts, you know? And that was really hard because as you might imagine, I was very anti-Trump and, you know, went after him pretty consistently in the the last five years. But I had to get the, the facts right, you know, because otherwise, you know, the, the Trump people don't like you criticizing Trump whatsoever. So with that, I learned that you have to be really logical and not attack him in a personal manner. You've got to just deal with the facts because otherwise you're, you're more fake news. And the idea mm-hmm. in dealing with Trump is that, you know, to expose what the man is uh, for better or for worse in a book, you got to get things right too. And uh, I, I made a, uh, small factual error which I won't tell you that's in the book and only one person has caught it so far and I'm so ashamed of it it's like uh it because being uh, someone who is around every part of New York uh that I didn't notice this or I just got this wrong it, it floors me
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: so that's a you you gotta go, you gotta get your facts right, and you gotta, you know, have uh, get into characters and try and portray them in a way that makes them appeal to people without turning them into plaster saints. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's a problem with this book or a problem you can run into because there's so much reverence for the people who died in 9-11. And I have it too with with Richie and uh with Father Michael. Uh, <clears throat> so getting them right, but at the same time, you know, showing them from what they were. Regular people out there right. doing their thing, who ran down there that day and uh did what they considered the right thing, ran up that stairs and uh you know, it was over before they knew it, kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think 9-11 did to New York City and the USA? Well,
1: we've become a fearful people since then, you know. I often use the term, but before 9-11, we were Clinton children. Clinton's children. I don't mean politically, but there was an optimism in the country and that optimism died right after 9-11 because if you think back to that moment, we would have done anything, you know? We would have done anything for the country at that point. We'd have gone into poor areas, you know, worked for nothing to bring people up to par, you know, educationally and everything. But the Bush people they asked nothing you know they wanted to get back to um, get back to par as quick as possible, have oil flowing into the country and and then on top of everything else they declared this stupid war that's still tearing this country apart, the Iraq war because so many people served over there and who came back to the country and haven't been able to fit back in, and uh, forget about the Middle East and forget about Afghanistan. You know, there's going to be going to be a lot of bloodshed in Afghanistan in the next year. And although on the face of it, it's Biden doing it, but it all goes back to nine eleven and um, you know invading at that time, but not finishing the job there instead deciding to go into someplace like Iraq and turn it into a Western democracy, it just shows the lack of any understanding of history that most politicians have. I mean, the minute I heard we were going into Iraq and Black 47 came out straight against it and we we fought that war for, for three or four years, did an album called Iraq about it. And... Uh, lost a lot of gigs over it. Mm. Um, But the minute I heard we're going to Iraq, I was thinking, did these guys never hear of Yugoslavia? That you take out Saddam, you're going to do the same thing as taking out Marshal Tito, that you've got a lot of different religions in there, and there's going to be civil war, just like there was in the uh, state of Yugoslavia after Tito died. And... Uh, I have nothing with Saddam. Of course, he was a a monster, a monster who was at home, by the way, at this point, (laughs) writing romance novels (laughs) in one of his palaces. You know, they would have taken him out eventually. The the Shia Shia would have taken him out eventually, but it might have done it organically and it wouldn't have been the same um, Shia-Sunni divide that there is that we reopened um, by invading. So I, I think 9-11 changed this country. We can change it back, but we got to change it by looking outwards and seeing what we can do to help the world at this point rather than make America great again, whatever
0: that was. Are there any favorite memorials that you have to 9-11 that you've seen? No, mm-hmm.
1: It'll, it still hurts me. Uh, and I live pretty close and I walk down the the newly kind of done up west side, you know, the, by the river a lot, but I still turn away when I get towards um, where the Liberty Tower is. Now, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not against that, I actually kind of like the look of it. Uh, most people don't, but no. I, you know it's still it's still a wound as it is to a lot of uh New Yorkers and probably a lot of people around the world you know the, there was something lost uh that we haven't regained yet and I wanted to <clears throat> do that with with Rockaway blue to show that um, that the characters. Are fighting something they don't know what it is even they know they lost their brother or their son and they're dealing with that the way every family does but there are other um, winds and forces blowing um, that they're dealing with and it's hard for them to see what it is you know they're they're getting on with life as best they can but they're not able to get over this. And uh, that makes for a a good setting for a book. I've always found Mm -hmm. you put people under pressure when you're under pressure, you make mistakes and that's good for a play as a playwright. I always do that. I always look for um, something that, you know, where mistakes are being made we're uh, just great drama because then you know you've got the right setting. So no, I have no favorite memorials. In fact, I went to see the memorial once and uh <clears throat> you know looked for Richie's name on it and everything, and I never went back. It was like I don't mm-hmm. want, I don't want to see it again. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I got I got I got these guys in my head. You know, they're,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they're, they'll always be there, and they're great inspirations. I don't want to look at our tombstones. You know.
0: 20 years after 9-11, what do you want people to think about when they remember that day? I, <clears throat> I guess
1: it's the mistakes that were made after it that trouble me. They're going to war in Iraq using 9-11 as politicians do use great events like that. Uh, I think it destroyed a trust thing. And uh, I know that's usually on the right, you're talking about that, that, that people welcomed Trump because they were sick of all other politicians. But, you know, a lot of politicians are doing the best they can too. But there was a huge mistake. Going to war in Iraq was a dreadful mistake that we're still paying for. I guess what I do remember fondly is that great feeling of solidarity. I remember going up with a, a big body of people and standing outside um, St. Vincent's in the village, seeing if they needed uh, blood transfusions, and um, no blood transfusions were needed because anyone who was in, inside was just you know, dust afterwards but it was that feeling of solidarity with everyone that we could have changed the world back then. So I think my memory of it is more the opportunity that was lost at that point.
0: What's next? What do you have coming up?
1: Uh, Um, Well, it's another New York historical thing. Um, It's, a musical called Paradise Square that I began back in 2012 um, as a play called, as a musical called Hard Times. And it tells the story of the Irish who came over here uh, during what we quote unquote the famine years and who <clears throat> made their way into the Five Points down in lower Manhattan, and to met for the first time African-Americans. So it was these two brutalized peoples, one who had fled enslavement in the South and one who had fled hunger in Ireland, actually got together. And for those 18 years, from 1845 until the draft riots in 1863, they amalgamated um, as couples, even. Uh, and they did so in the African American owned <clears throat> dance halls uh, i came across it by uh some pictures by chance in uh, in the strand i think it was or some etchings from the american uh, from the african american dance halls and uh there were so many couples black and white couples that the Uptown Protestants, as the um, the Irish call them, uh, the uptown establishment uh, had a name for them. They called them amalgamationists, and uh, they were despised. So, but for eighteen years, uh, the people danced together, loved together, married together, <clears throat> and. Um, Then it was all destroyed on the night of July 13, 1863. So the the musical deals with them coming together and how they kind of created American pop culture. Uh, By their dance competitions, they formed, uh, or they invented tap dancing. And um, it was a period in history that's, largely forgotten about, and I wanted to bring it out there uh, and let people rediscover it again so that if this happened once, it can happen again. That's that. That's kind of the idea behind it, that these people were able to amalgamate and create lives and create a new kind of culture. And um, there's so much suspicion these days between black and white, Uh, I think this play or this musical can do something about it. It's now called Paradise Square. Um, It's uh, going to be in Chicago in November and December. And then it comes to uh, the Barrymore Theater on Broadway uh, in February. So it's a big one.
0: Congratulations, and we'll look forward to it. Yeah, thanks so much. This is Rob Snyder. I've been talking to Larry Kerwin, author of Rockaway Blue for the Gotham Center and the New Books Network.